This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. We even have visitors from out of town. (laughs) Good to see you guys. There are times in Scripture when you um, come across stuff that's a little bit intimidating to preach. I think that this psalm uh, is one of those times. God is really clear in the New Testament that the of first importance is, is Christ and him crucified. So so the central thing, the most important thing in all of Scripture is who Jesus is and what he's done. And so it doesn't mean that other things are less inspired. It doesn't mean that other things aren't even connected or or related to that. Because I think as as our church has been persistent about, is that all of Scripture is ultimately about Christ. But but there 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 are things that are much, much more clearly reveal who he is and what he's done. You know, I think when we do good, our Good Friday service, don't we just feel kind of the weight of walking through the narrative of that? Like you're, 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 you're hearing about what is happening to our Lord and Savior that we sing and that we worship. Um, and even just a sense of that narrative, it kind of pulls on your heartstrings in a way that I think is, is weighty and appropriate. And it leads to the Easter celebration, we're, we're excited, we're, um, we celebrate, we have so much joy in light of the darkness that comes from the cross. And I think that's why Paul is saying both the death and the resurrection, Christ and him crucified and, and raised is what's so central to everything in scripture. And so when we come to Psalm 22, it's a Psalm that you guys are probably familiar with. It's, 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 it's actually zooming in on it's, it's almost getting inside of the head of everything that Jesus was going through in that exact moment on the cross. He cries out, Ben said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's intimately familiar with this psalm. And even as he's hung up on the cross, even as he's suffering unjustly, nailed, bleeding, naked, ashamed, he sees that he is fulfilling prophecy. His hands and his feet, they're pierced. They're they're casting lots for his clothing in front of him. He sees and is aware that he's fulfilling prophecy on the cross. And then for our benefit, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For our benefit, he opens up the inner, most precious thoughts of our Lord and Savior as he suffers the most difficult thing in the entire world. And this morning, we have access to that. This morning, we get to step into the thoughts of Christ as he suffers on the cross. 
I think that this is so central. I think that this is um, not just a hallowed space, not just maybe the holy of holies of the death and resurrection of Christ. I think this is extremely valuable and instructive for us. Extremely valuable and instructive for us. Because what does he tell his disciples on his way to the cross? He says, if you were to be my disciple, if you were to follow after me, what are we called to do? We're called to take up our own cross. And they, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Amen. I think it's interesting because we, you know, there's no argument over the reality of suffering in the world. Christian or non-Christian, there's pain and suffering. So it's, it's almost like Jesus is doubling down for the Christian. Saying, for those of you who would come after me, for those of you who are going to follow the trail that I'm blazing to eternal glory, he doesn't say there's suffering in the world and you'll have to handle it because it's true of everybody. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing. You have to be ready to take up your cross, your shameful torture device and follow me through that. And I don't think he, it means in the sense that each one of us will need to be nailed to a cross. There are believers um, in history and in the world today that do have to suffer some of those things. But God is gracious and kind and cares for his people and he's perfectly orchestrating every aspect of the suffering in your life for your good and for you to be able to follow Christ as you suffer like he has suffered on your way to glory. And I think that this passage is so instructive to us because as we suffer, we can respond to that in a lot of different ways. We can pretend it's not there We can make it everything we think about. We can minimalize it with stuff that God has said. We can take true things and make it seem like it's not a big deal. And here, we get to look into how Jesus dealt with suffering. We get to look in to see how the perfect man Trusting the Father responded to the worst suffering in human history that ever would be. He had to deal with the sin of others. He had to deal with being made in the flesh. The, he was tired. He was exhausted. He thirsted. He couldn't carry his cross. He was weak because of sin. And yet he didn't have to deal with his sin but scripture says he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So there is a sense in which you could say Jesus had to deal with his sin more than we ever will have to deal with our sin. He became sin 
so that we could become the righteousness of God. Amen. So at every single point of the effects of the fall, sin of others, our sin, sin around the, in the world, the brokenness, at every single point is intersected at the cross for Christ. And here we are in this real holy place. Over a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the cross and God has opened up his innermost thoughts so that you and I could learn to suffer well as we take up our cross. And not just suffer well for suffering's sake. Jesus, it says in Hebrews that Jesus put his, uh, his joy was set ahead. He was looking forward to this joy that was before him. Even before the cross, he says, I tell you these things so that you would have my joy. He's instructing us here in the act of suffering, in the, in the innermost thoughts of our Savior. Not so that we could just bear it. Not that we should just push our way through. Not that we could just make it go away. But so that we could have the joy set before us. So that we could respond in praise and worship. So that we could have the joy that he had on his way to the cross. And so we're going to look at, I think, three themes that come up in this passage. And they're not all that neat. And so we're going to kind of anchor ourselves in this, just this little sentence here. The feels, the facts, and the requests of suffering. And if you've ever been in a situation where you can't avoid suffering, or you've been in a situation where maybe you pushed it away for so long and it's just caught up to you, or you've been in a situation where there's obviously no fix. You know that even for yourself, these things are a mess. We don't suffer in a neat order in our heads. <laughs> it's probably the most messy. So I think that's instructive even in, in the psalm. There's a lot of different things that are going on here emotionally and I think that's because God is giving us a glimpse into what a sanctified, into what a holy, into what a perfect internal response is to suffering. Look at the first couple of verses. We'll be in Psalm 22 basically the whole time. So if you want to open your Bibles, scroll to it in your app. I'm just going to walk through this. The first couple of verses, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he cries out this on the cross. One commentator said that he needed the sour wine because his mouth was so dry that it was impossible for him to speak. So every word that came from the mouth of Christ from the cross was an effort and another act of suffering. 
but he cries this out and says, why, why, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. This is how Jesus feels. He's a man trusting God on his way to the cross and says, why? In his suffering, he says, why? My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Lord, I've come to you. I've shed tears. I've poured out my heart to you. Why am I suffering? Why is this still here? Why am I going through this? Jesus isn't beating around the bush with the feels. He's being honest. He's expressing how he feels. That should be encouraging to some of us. Maybe instructive. It's okay to share how we feel. It's okay to cry out and say, Lord, why? It's okay to say, I've done the things I've cried out to you and I'm still here. Why? I have no rest. I have no peace. That's okay. In fact, I would say if you aren't expressing how you feel about your suffering, if you're not wrestling with where God has put you, you're not honoring him. You're not accepting the circumstances. You're avoiding it. You're not thinking about it. Jesus isn't shy about how he feels. I cry by day, but you don't answer. If you haven't asked why when you're suffering, if you haven't said why, Lord, when you're suffering, you aren't suffering like Jesus suffered. But it's more than just the feels. And there's more feels. He's real with the facts. Doesn't ignore that either. And for some of us, it's easy to get caught up in the feels. You're like, Aaron, thank you. I can express myself now. I can tell you how I feel. That's where I'm going to go. I'm not going anywhere else. (laughs) For some of you, I'm encouraging you to express how you feel. But it's not just the feels, it's the facts. There's truth, there's reality. There's things that God has done. There's there's an unchanging creator that Jesus has entrusted himself to. So he reminds himself of that. In the midst of the why, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the no rest, no peace, in the midst of crying out nailed to the cross, he has thoughts 
of the facts about the God that he trusts in. Look at what he says. Yet, yet, I don't know why I'm still suffering, yet you are holy. You are set apart. Your ways are not my ways. You don't change. You don't learn. You're the fullness of joy. You're everything the creature is not. You are holy. And you know where you dwell? You dwell in the praises and worship of your people. Amen. You're surrounded by that, Lord. You're worshiped because you're worthy of worship. More facts in verse four, he says, in you our fathers trusted. Lord, I can look back on history and see where other believers have entrusted themselves to you. I can look back at all kinds of situations that are dire and that they didn't know the reasons and that they were crying out and suffering. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Jesus is encouraging us here to consider the facts. How much more of God's faithfulness do we have access to now that Christ has been risen? How many more examples of God revealing his good character do we need? What are the facts that you remind yourself of when you're suffering? Do you remind yourself of the fact that your suffering is most definitely from the hand of God? Do you remind yourself of the fact that he's a good God? He's a just God? He's a merciful God? He's a gracious God? He's a caring God? He's a loving God? Do you remind yourself of the fact that even in the worst moment of your day, of your week, of your life, that the same God who created the beauty and wonder that we look out in the sky, the same God that painted galaxies as the new James Webb telescope shows us some wonders and glory and beauty, the same God that didn't use a brush that used stars with masses that we can't even comprehend, the same God that was articulate in painting that picture that we can see for the first time with a telescope that no one's been able to see, the same God that does that with universes is the one that's painted and particularly orchestrated your suffering. 
exactly for you. Because he loves you. Do you remind yourself of the facts? I think that I appreciate the next verse because this is the messy part. Jesus isn't crying out and asking why, reminding himself of the facts, and then moving on with smiles. He goes back to how he feels. It's not that neat. It's messy. Look at verse six. He says, but I'm a worm. He's literally not a worm, right? He's expressing how he, how humiliated he is. He's expressing how he feels. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Despised. The people I gave myself for. The people I left the Father and entered in as a suffering servant. The people I healed. The people I fed. The people I stayed up countless nights for, praying for, pleading with the Father to work. The people I exhausted myself for so much so that I passed out in a boat while a storm is going on. The people that I have given everything for consider me a worm and not a man. I feel miserable. All who see me mock me naked nailed to a cross. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Just expressing the biting sarcasm of fools mocking Christ and making him feel low. And what do they do? How do they make fun of him? Oh, hey, you trust in God. You trust in God. Let him save you. You told us a lot about your father. Where is he now? The very place, the very person that Jesus is crying out to my God the very person that he's saying Lord you've rescued before you're holy you're worshipped everyone around him is saying yeah and you trust him but you're here why do you trust him that's foolish look at where it's got you And I don't think, I don't think we have that obvious of a situation where people are saying that to us. But it's in here. We doubt. We, we think it. 
maybe don't want to. Maybe we just try to avoid that. Netflix that thought away. Works for a while. But how many of us have done something that we think is genuinely right? How many of us have stepped forward in faith and said, Lord, I want to honor you in this? And it turned out like we were nailed to a cross. Lord, I trusted you. And now I'm humiliated. I was doing the right things for you. And now I'm suffering. What's the deal? It's interesting. We believe and confess and have it on really fancy banners that the gospel is beautiful. The central truth of the gospel is that it's good news because he's done everything. The central truth of the gospel is that you, no matter what you do, good, indifferent, wicked, no matter what you do, God's love for you is based off what Christ has done. Period. Nothing else can change that. If you have been united to Christ, if you've tasted and seen the love of the Father, and your experience is different, that didn't go away. Everything you stepped out in faith and did for the Lord didn't change his love for you. Everything you fell flat on your face and deserve wrath for didn't change his love for you. But that's the logic we, like undoing that out of our mind is so hard. Lord, I did these things and look where it got me. Like I earned something. He's like, no. Those things got you here because you earned nothing. I loved you before that more than you imagine now. I love you after that more than you can imagine now. Amen. And that's what Jesus is reminding us of. He feels humiliated, and he's honest about that. It's okay to feel that way. The facts don't fix the feelings. That's okay, too. He goes back in verse 9 and reminds us more of the facts. As he's mocked for trusting in the Lord, he reminds himself of the reality of the never-changing love of God. Another yet is a correcting his own feelings. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. 
how much more vulnerable can you be? How much more vulnerable can you be than a baby taking a bottle or a baby at their mother's breasts? That baby ain't getting itself, himself, herself anywhere. It is utterly trusting its creator. Just call it a her. It sounds weird. She is lovingly trusting her creator to survive. The baby didn't come out and figure out how to get through what it was going to do. Like, this is going to be tough, Lord. You know, I'm going to, I'll handle this. You know, I just need you to come in here and do this for me. Left alone, a baby will die. God has orchestrated everything to sustain that child. The reality is that that didn't change. You aren't less dependent on God than you were as an infant. Our sin just makes us think we are. Jesus says, on you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. You've been in control of everything since before I was aware of what I could be doing or who could be mocking me. It's interesting um, even learning about, I don't know if this is the right word for it, prenatal, babies in the womb. Things going on affect that child's life potentially for the rest of their life. Things happening biologically here play out in the rest of their life. Part of who you are, the way you act, how you respond to stress is because of your mother's life for nine months. God carefully and meticulously orchestrated that for you and is doing the same now in mothers in our community. On you, I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. You have been planning everything out from the beginning. That's the truth. That's the facts. facts aren't all good. I think that's another thing is we wrestle with suffering. We really can't deny the feelings. We shouldn't deny the feelings. We shouldn't only have feelings. We should also have facts, have true things that we're considering, that we're thinking about, about God himself. But man, they're true things about suffering that are also hard, that are easy to ignore. 
Jesus doesn't do that. He's describing what's happening to him. Even in verse 12, he says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. Evildoers encircus me. My hands are pierced. My feet are pierced. They stare. They gloat. They're dividing my garments. They're casting lots for me. Lord, this is the reality Nothing about this situation is good. It's okay to be honest about the facts of our suffering. We don't have to deny when we suffer because of other people's sin. We don't have to deny when we suffer because of our own sin. We don't have to deny when we're weak and we're broken because we live in a world that's cursed by sin. We have to be honest about those facts too. I think the temptation is, as we work through this psalm, as we think about how we are, we, our own hearts respond to the suffering that God has brought us. I think in different ways, we lean into different aspects of these things at the expense of the others. And kind of the third one is the request. the request of suffering. Jesus isn't just sitting on the cross, taking it, being honest about it, sharing how he feels. He's asking God for stuff. He's crying out to him. He's requesting. I skipped over it, but look at verse 11. It's just this jumble of feelings and facts, and right here in verse 11 is, is the first request. He says, be not far from me for trouble is near and there's none to help. Be not far from me. Lord, it's your presence that I long for. It's your presence that I desire. It's your presence that makes this worth it. It's your presence that makes it possible. It's painful. It's real. It says the same thing in verse 19. But you, Yahweh, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Rescue me. Deliver me from this situation. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And he's subtly, he's asking two things here. 
This is his request and his suffering. He's pleading with God. There's a lot more words in this particular side of the request, but he's pleading with God to be present, to not be far off, to reveal himself. He's pleading with God to be present. But he's also saying, help me in this circumstance. Rescue me. Pull me out of this. And he did after death. Same goes for how he rescued the fathers. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and they said, well, do you believe in the resurrection? And he's like, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is he the God of the dead? Hello? Everyone that trusted in the Father is alive and wasn't hurt by the second death. When we're suffering... Is that our request? For God to be present? When we're honest about the facts, good and bad, when we're not running away from how we feel but where we're at, does that lead us to request the presence of God? Or do we want a resolution? Or do we want the answer? Or do we, we don't even request, we just start hustling and figure out a way to fix this. And none of these things by themselves are, are wrong. But how many times are we in a suffering situation where we don't have an answer, we don't have a fix? Does that lead us to plead for the presence of God? Jesus is asking us to take up our cross. He's instructing us on how to suffer well. He's sharing his innermost thoughts as he pulls all of his strength together, hanging, dying, bleeding on the cross to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's given us internally what's going on in his mind. And he's saying, be open about how you're suffering. Share the fact that it hurts. It hurts. Be honest about the situation. If you're getting nailed to a tree, you're getting nailed to a tree. If you're getting mistreated, you're getting mistreated. If you're physically broken, you're physically broken. Don't ignore that. But be honest about who God is. He's sovereign. He's working all these things out. His character is good. He's loving. And if all of that go to him, turn to him and say, Lord, please be present. Help me have a sense of you. Your presence is the fullness of joy. I need that. Nothing in the world can fix what is going on. I need you to be here. Yes, Lord. He's saying all of these things. 
because he wants you to also be able to fix your mind on the glory that's set before you. He wants you to have his joy. And the glory, the real glory that's set before you is the presence of God. And because of the spirit, because of what Jesus has done, sitting on his throne, you are now able to enter into the presence of God. God is willing and able to draw near to you. Amen. You may have to take up your cross. No, you, you will. You will have to take up your cross. Some way, shape, or form. Some of you are bearing it now. But because of Christ, you have access to salvation to the uttermost. You can request the presence of God and receive it. Amen. In verse 21, there's a shift. And there's an interesting debate about how to interpret this. And I also found out there's an interesting debate around verb tenses in the Hebrew language. We say past, present, future. That happened, this is happening, that's gonna happen. Apparently most scholars think that in Hebrew, that's not how it works. It's either done or not done. It doesn't even have to do with future or past or present. It's about the completion of the action. Is this action completed or not? could be completed in the future as I talk about it. could be completed in the past, could be completed now. And so this is a verb that's expressing completion. And we translate it, okay, well, it's complete, so we must translate it, you've been rescued. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus is not rescued on the cross. And so how we look at this phrase is, could be, we could say, hey, he's being prophetic. And that's okay. Sometimes, like, they speak in the the completed sense when they know it's certain. But it seems likely Jesus is saying what the book of Hebrews says. You utterly save. You completely rescue. Your rescue doesn't fall short. Your rescue is complete. And he makes this statement and he shifts forward. He shifts forward in the psalm because all the feels, all the facts, all the requests that go through our mind while we're suffering is what leads us to praise and worship. Necessarily. As God draws near, as we have a sense of who he is, it leads us to praise and worship. Because God does save to the uttermost. He completely saves. So he looks forward and he knows because God utterly saves. In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name, of your character to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. I'm going through this suffering. I'm crying out to you. I'm being honest about what's going on. I will praise you. I know I will. All who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. 
people of God. Why? Because we know his character. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. You request him to draw near, he will. He will. goes on to just encourage us with what we receive from God in our suffering. From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. He's, he knows that he will be with his people, praising and worshiping God. He is crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as he's expressing how he feels because he's a human and it's real, he's confident that God will rescue him. There's no doubt. The feelings and the facts are perfect with Christ. Both. I will be rescued. Why have you abandoned me? Those things are held together in the person of Christ. Verse 26, he says, the afflicted will most definitely eat and be satisfied. There will be satisfaction. Those who seek the Lord shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What a sentence. Those who go after the Lord will find him. May your hearts live forever. He's like, you're about to experience God himself, satisfaction, joy, his presence. Man, live forever in that. Amen. And not just you, not just the, the people of Israel, but the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. God utterly saves that he will ensure everyone will worship him, including the dead. There isn't anything that will keep God from bringing you into his presence. Nothing. Posterity shall serve him shall be told to the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. 
said this in previous Psalm 22 sermons. I'll say it again. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus was, was saying. We're here on the other side of the globe 2,000 years later proclaiming that he has done it. It's happening. The gospel is going out. Generation after generation are being united to Christ and worshiping. Even the ones who went down to the dust are before his throne praising and worshiping his name. For most of us, our suffering will not end there anytime soon. We don't know. But that is, I like how Calvin calls it the last calamity, death. I like that because there's a lot of other calamities. Like stuff is crazy. And he's like, you know, death is also that. It's the last and hardest one. But as God brings suffering orchestrated for you, picked out for you, lovingly, carefully brought into your life. And as he's revealing the son who's united to you, he's revealing the son who is working powerfully in and through you for the transforming of your mind, for the renewing of your mind so that you can be honest about the fields. You can express the facts, good and bad. And you can learn to request, yeah, that the circumstances change, but more than that, that God is present. That God is present in your suffering. And as our stepping into the cross we bear, as our thinking and our minds begin to be formed and conformed more and more into the image of Christ because of the power of the Spirit, you and I, in our suffering, like Christ, will be able to speak with confidence while we're miserable. <laughs> we'll be able to sing and praise and worship and have joy as we, as we see and sense who God is, as we're honest about the difficult things in life. That's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has blazed a trail for us. He's walked the path. He's done it. He knows what it feels like sharing that experience with us. But he's more than an example. I've said this before. He's ensuring that we get there. Like our suffering is often man, I don't deal with suffering very well. <laughs> he knows that. And we can cry out to him. We can be honest about that. I like to avoid. I want to sit in my fields. I don't want to have to think about the facts. I'd rather fix it. I'm not going to go to the Lord for help. He knows that. <laughs> this is the beauty of the cross. Nothing is going to take you away from him, even how you suffer. But he wants to bring you joy. He wants you to recognize that and turn to him so that you can have a sense of him. So you're not stranded out there. So I just encourage you, as you think about your suffering, whatever it is, small, 
large. It's going to happen today. Maybe it happened this morning. Maybe it's happening. So you think about your suffering. Are you being open with the Lord, with your friends, with your gospel community about how you feel? You should. Are you being honest about the facts? Comes from God. The pain of it. The real suffering. And are you requesting that he's present? Because I promise you, if you have the spirit, if you're united to the son, he's powerful. I promise you that that will lead to praise and worship and joy. The real and true presence of God. Let's pray and ask him for that. Father, forgive me as I fall so far short of what is revealed in the inner life of your son on the cross. Lord, he took it upon himself to humble himself. He didn't need you to humble him. He humbled himself trusted you. Lord, I need you to humble me. Everything in my heart resists that. Lord, I pray that you would humiliate me so that I can look more like your son. I pray for the people here who are suffering. pray that you would encourage them to express how they feel, to be honest about the facts, to just ask you, ask you for help. At the end of the day, you would receive more of the praise and honor and worship and glory that you are already enthroned on because it's never enough. You need to be worshiped more, Lord. Thank you for this morning. I thank you for just the sweetness of our church family, burritos, hanging out and considering the glory and majesty of your beautiful son. You need my prayer. Amen.